Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Mark Horn entitled Ephesians and the New Perspective. Check out the Mark Horn collection now on Canon Plus. Let's bow in prayer, our heads of prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have intervened in our lives, our lives individually, as we have been brought to believe in you, and also collectively as we have together in your church, been transformed through Jesus Christ through the ages. We ask you that you would give us uh, new eyes to see, as the Apostle Paul himself prayed in this epistle, to see what you've revealed to us in this book of Ephesians. And I pray that you would, uh, by your Spirit, be with us and allow this to take place to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I originally had planned simply to start into Ephesians chapter 1 and just go forward. But I started having some doubts about that, so I've decided to go ahead and give you an introductory lecture, if you will. I mean, I always worry about stealing my own thunder, not that there's that much to steal in the first place. But then, um, I also know that it probably sticks better if we kind of give people context, say what you're going to say, say it, and tell people what you've just said. Uh, We all have to remember what we hear, it's not just a matter of hearing it, so... I thought this might help us get into the groove a little bit. And also I thought it would help you if you maybe, maybe I'd be more clear if you knew a little bit more of where I was coming from. And where I'm coming from with Ephesians has something to do in the past few years with uh, some current debates or discussions or really nasty wrestling matches or whatever. Um, on the gospel. What is the gospel? What is um, the message that Paul is giving us and God is giving us through Paul in books like Romans and Galatians? How many of you here have heard of something about the so-called new perspective on Paul? Like I see hands. How many of you have never heard that term before as a term, new perspective on Paul? All right, most of you have. So maybe maybe this will all be old hat. But there's some discussions about what is the center of our, I don't even know how to say this right, what what is Paul emphasizing in Romans, Galatians, what is he talking about, what is he trying to tell people? So there's been discussions about salvation by grace, and whether or not that's the um, what Paul's trying to get across to people, um, or how he's trying to get that across to people, and also questions about justification, um, what that means, whether it's by works, etc., And I don't want to get into Romans and Galatians today. I just want to point out that it's really odd to me that Ephesians is not figuring more heavily in this discussion. We have this book book of Ephesians. It's preached on plenty. I mean, people do know it's there in the Bible. um, It is for evangelicals. We all recognize it as from Paul. It's in our scriptures. So why aren't we using this? Because it has some, some great things to say. And I mean, I could ask the same thing about other scriptures. Uh, You know, Turn with me to Titus chapter 3 real quick. Let me just read that to you. Um, this is in Ephesians, obviously, but it's another case where I, w- I wonder why I'm not hearing this um, discussed more. Um, Titus 3, 1 through 7, we read, uh, <clears throat> um, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, which tells you what Paul's going to think, being submissive to these people is very easy. We once ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. My point there is just that, you know, if Paul happens to be more interested in Jew-Gentile relationships in the book of Galatians or in the book of Romans, that doesn't mean we've suddenly lost Protestant doctrine. And I just find it strange that we're not seeing more of these other texts just simply invoked. Um, you know, God gave us a, not a huge book, but a pretty large book. And I think there's a redundancy factor. If you've misunderstood one passage slightly, you might find that you've 
had other passages to lean on, and it's, it's all there still. The whole gospel is still there. And that brings me back to Ephesians. I mean, Ephesians has this great, the text that we all memorize, um, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2. Um, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, you know, the controversy there, I just, I will steal a little bit of my thunder. I'll repeat this when we come to chapter 2. But, you know, the controversy has been when Paul speaks of the works of the law, is he really, is he speaking about uh, an attempt to earn or merit salvation by moral good works? Or is he actually emphasizing Jewish identity, that in fact salvation is being, been extending, is being extended now through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to all people equally? Irreve- um, irrelevant, um, Jewish and Gentile identity is now irrelevant. There's no second class citizenship in the kingdom of God anymore. Does the works of the law have a special emphasis on the law as given as a marker of Israel's special covenant identity? And I want to just say here that even if it did so in Galatians and Romans, here we have a statement that salvation is by grace and it's not by works. And then Paul goes on to say that we ourselves have been remade, we are Christ's workmanship, to do good works. I think it's pretty obvious that the good works he means is not circumcision or Jewish identity. He means good works. We should, we're appointed to do things that glorify God, to mature and develop in the grace we've been given. So you have a statement where um, we're saying that for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, as the ESV puts it. The, I like the ESV a lot of times, but the word, word works is actually in there. The same word that's used later to say that we have been prepared, um, we have been creating Christ Jesus for good works. So obviously the works there, are, it's, it's a general moral law, as we would call it. it. It's that we are supposed to do good works. We haven't been saved by these things, We've been saved to these things. So in other words, we have a great Lutheran proof text. Why haven't we seen it being used more? Why are people acting like only in Romans and Galatians can we find this stuff? And if that's taken away from us or if that's questioned at all, then we've entirely lost the Protestant faith. I, I don't get it. I, I think it's, it just doesn't make sense. Um, I, I think we should discuss those other passages in Romans and Galatians and look at them and ask what is God saying in them according to the actual words there in the background? Not necessarily what we need Luther to tell us that it says. But at the same time, we've got plenty of other passages. Why aren't we using them? Uh, you know, part of the reason is the new perspective on Paul is actually a wider... Um, it's being talked about in the wider world, not among people who are Bible believers. A lot of people who don't believe that Paul uh, wrote Ephesians, thus won't let it be used in this kind of discussion. But... That shouldn't affect us as evangelicals, should it? I mean, we, we believe Paul gave us this book. So that's, that's kind of what started my interest in this, um, to look at Ephesians. And that led to some other things. Um, if you asked, if you, if you, maybe this wouldn't be so true today, though maybe it's become more true recently, but if you asked someone 50 years ago, where does, where's Paul's basic abstract theological summary of the gospel? You know, assuming that we need such a thing, assuming that's a good thing, where would you find it? Where is it in the New Testament? What, would, what book would most people say? Anyone want to volunteer and answer that? Romans. People just assume Romans. And Romans has a lot of material. I, I, I'm going to give some caveats to this. I'm not sure we should be pursuing, you know, the book that's the general, generic, you know, Paul's, Paul's version of Burkhoff or whatever. I'm not sure we should be looking for that. But if we are, let's just say we, if we are, if that was our ideal, then, frankly, it's not Romans. I mean, Romans is written for a certain occasion. He's, um, he wants to go there. He wants to be a missionary. He's got a bunch of stuff he wants to say about their own interpersonal relationships. He's got an agenda. Um, I won't go into this. It's, it's been covered before. So there's literature on this. We all, see, I have it in my notes. We all know by now, question mark, or brackets, question, uh, that Romans 1 through 8 is not the heart of the letter with some stuff tacked on later about Jews and Gentiles. This is not the way Romans works. It's not the way Romans was, um, was written. If we were looking for a book that is Paul's generic gospel tract, if he wrote such a thing, and if such a thing is highly necessary, again, I'm not positive on this, but if we were going to get close, uh, it would be Ephesians. It would be the book of Ephesians. 
The book of Ephesians, um, apparently, you know, we have versions of this that have been discovered where it's written to another, it's written to a church, but the word Ephesians is not in there. Like it, like it could have been written to some other church. Like there's other churches. This seems to be Paul's circular letter. It's um, noticed, it's been noticed that it, it's missing kind of the personal references that are in a lot, in a lot of Paul's other letters. Now, of course, this is why, um, you know, higher critics and people who won't submit to the authority of the Bible will tend to actually want to say it's not Pauline at all. All right. That, that happens. But that's that's not the evidence. That's, I mean, the, there's no reason to say that. That's unfounded. At the same time, it is written as a it's, it's probably Paul's most generic letter. Um, you know, and, and you don't know if it's written to a specific congregation or if Ephesus is considered in its wider region. It's being circulated around by Titius, who's mentioned at the end of this. But it's, it seems to be written as Paul's gospel tract. And, um, you know, that's instructional. I mentioned something. Do you realize Paul wrote a description of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and the change he's made in our lives and the salvation we have? And doesn't use the word righteous as a forensic kind of status or the word justified once. So he, he can use other language to do that. Um, he can use other language to get those points across. For some reason, he did not need to use the word justification or justified in his description of our salvation, Jesus Christ. And I don't think that should be controversial, but, you know, now I think I'd get in a lot of problems if I wrote Ephesians. But anyway in a lot of trouble. But that's um that's what that that that's been intriguing to me and I thought if we're going to if we're going to um to deal with Ephesians, I mean we're going to be looking for this kind of theological as this this theological abstract summary statement. Ephesians should be at the top of our list. All right? Ephesians should be at the top of our list. Now there, I put a caveat there, right? Um, the whole Bible is actually arranged to be a providentially created document that's exactly what we need. We needed Romans to be written for, to, the, to the situation. We needed this stuff in Romans. So I'm not sure this is exactly how we should be, what we should be looking for in the Bible. I'm afraid to some extent we've been trained so much by our own versions of systematic theology that we can't even understand the Bible sometimes. Um, the Bible doesn't give us a systematic theology as we understand it. So... Um, for example, I'm really grateful that the Corinthians were doing the Lord's Supper wrong. I mean, if, if they hadn't been doing the Lord's Supper wrong, we would be missing a great deal of uh, what we have on, you know, New Testament Eucharistic theology in um, the book of the, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians. I see I skipped something in my notes. I want to make sure I don't. Um, this is the problem. I tend to want to look you all in the eye, and I hate looking at the paper. Um, <clears throat> you know... Going back up to my first point, why Ephesians? Let's just let's just cover some of the territory that's in there. We have, as I said, a great Lutheran proof text. We have in Ephesians a great description of um, the grace of God. Um, like, for instance, chapter two, verse eight through ten. It's one of the memory verses we all probably were taught. It's considered one of the foundation summaries of the gospel that by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. That the whole thing is a gift of God. Um, I should note that there's no reason we should be surprised or we should, um, one of the baits of the new perspective is what exactly was Paul arguing against his adversaries. Were the Pharisees basically kind of like proto-Roman um, Catholics, medieval people who believed in, you know, some uh, kind of a, that we earn our salvation, that we merit it. And, you know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I'm not going to get into that here. I'm just going to say that we don't need to envision any enemies of the gospel in order to expect Paul to give us a clear gospel presentation. Um, when God saves people, people may or may not, but they, I mean, it's possible they would be, tempted to think that they did something to earn or deserve it. Okay? And so it makes sense, no matter what your setting is, just given human nature, that um, God would tell you, no, I'm just doing this because I love you and I love you despite your faults, despite what you deserve. And so, for example, you know, we turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, I'll start in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, why is that? Is that because they actually, you know, got the Ten Commandments and made themselves holy? Well, no, it's because the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
Um, it is not because you are more in number than any other people than the Lord that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt. So, you know, it's grace. And then also then over in chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, he emphasizes also that it's not their moral behavior. Uh, chapter 9, verse, six, uh, verse 4, he says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them, the Canaanites, out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess those land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And there's other passages too where he says, look, you're a stiff-necked people. I don't, I'm not doing this because of your righteousness. Now, my point is, you know, debates over why Paul was arguing with other people are fine. But if those people weren't the kind of, you know, errorists that we want them to be, you know, in other words, I don't infer from what, from what, from what Moses says in Deuteronomy that the Egyptians were also teaching merit legalism, that they were bringing merit legalism out of Egypt. I don't, I don't need to make that kind of assumption. The point is, God tells us he saves us by grace. And that's not debatable. That's not ambiguous. And there's nothing that's been said, as far as I can tell, in these discussions that really jeopardizes that. And so Ephesians has it. He makes these statements. We would expect him to make these statements. God has saved you. God's delivered you. God's given his son for you. And by the way, of course, this wasn't your own doing. It was God's. And it wasn't because of what you deserved. It's because of God's great mercy. By grace, you've been saved. That shouldn't be considered jeopardized by... Um, these kind of discussions, and yet if you get into the shrill end of um, these discussions that have been taking place, you, you find it implied that people are trying to tamper with these doctrines. Well, they're not at stake. That's, that's providential to emphasize my point. Um, so, God has delivered us, and Ephesians says this very well, and he, you know, like I said, if there was one place where we expect this summary to be had, Ephesians looks like it's a pretty abstract summary. It looks like if this is, if Paul's got, you know, something, he, okay, Paul's got, you know, something in his voice, he can't speak for a week, and someone comes by and he needs to hand them a tract real fast, and he, fast, and he knows nothing about them, he'd hand them Ephesians. All right? A little bit different than that. I mean, it's, it's, Ephesians is written to Christians, um, but he would hand them, he would, this is the kind of his abstract, generic message. Apart from the controversies in, engaged in, in, in uh, Romans and, and especially in Galatians, um, this is his generic message to the churches about what they have, what they've been given, and how they should respond to that. And so I think it's, it's, worth, our, it's worth our time. Um, by the way, I should mention, you know, I want to talk a little bit, I want to go a little excursus here about abstract truths. And we, we say that a lot. I mean, this is kind of, I got this, I think, from... I started reading Jim, and I started reading some other people about the constant need for that we seem to have as modern readers of the Bible to come up with some kind of abstract message um, that we can then um, use in a way that we think is profitable. And the problem is that we keep getting rid of and ignoring the particularities of what God has said. Um, you know, I can read lots of things about the tabernacle and the temple and the Old Testament in bookstores that are not going to go into any of the detail. They're going to come. They're going to use a few things. They're going to come up with premature conclusions because they don't want to actually get involved in the particularities. They want to simply take something out of there that they think that people will find useful. And the problem is we don't have any warrant for believing that we know what's useful apart from God's word. We need to study God's word in its entirety and be um, uh, be changed by it, and then we'll know what we need. If God wanted to give us a bunch of weird discussions about Israeli and, and versus Gentile identity and the covenant in, in Romans, for sake of argument, well, that's his business. We're supposed to submit to that. We're not supposed to get angry that you know it, it's not as simple as it used to be the way we wanted it to be when we were first taught it in, in Sunday school or something like that. So, you know, I just want to point out, you know, just because Ephesians is kind of generic doesn't mean it's really abstract. It actually is aimed at a particular time. 
particular place, even if it's not like one church with one group of relationships and one controversy, it's still a certain era, you know, the era of Paul's own ministry. So I have here, you know, in your notes, I point out that, you know, the only real abstract truth is that God exists. Everything else is contingent on some details, right? I mean, God could have created or not created. I mean, as soon as he starts creating, things get a little bit less abstract. The kind of abstraction that people usually want from the New Testament is what? They want, basically, there's a way in which a person is made an heir to eternal life, whether he lived before or after the time of Christ's death and resurrection. And that's kind of the way that most um, Reformed uh, works on soteriology work. They, you know, how is a person made right before God? And the fact that a person at one time, even if he was right with God, was not allowed in God's presence is considered kind of an irrelevant detail. All right? I mean... You know, we have these great invitations in Deuteronomy about, you know, come and bring your wife and your children, your slaves, and the Levite in your gates, the stranger and alien, and come and come party with me, eat a lot of food, drink a lot of wine, have fun. If you come too close, I'll kill you. <laughs> I have a house, and you're, you're welcome to the back porch or outside my gates. And if you come too close, I'll kill you. And there's no chairs in my house because you're not allowed to sit there. Uh, you see what I'm saying? I mean, that's, that is. God, I mean, you can find all these grace and love in the Old Covenant. There, there is a lot of grace and love. And if you come too close, God will kill you. And uh, you can't get away from that. that you know, and you can't tell me that when Paul starts believing that, in fact, we now all have, even though we don't get to see it anymore the way we used to, it's, it's, not, it's not materially symbolized. We're now in the priesthood. We're now in the tabernacle, we're in the temple, we ourselves are living stones, that we now are, um, that we now get to drink wine in God's presence. We get to sit in God's house, because we are God's house. You can't tell me that wasn't a huge transition, like, oh wow, we're really right with God now. To say that we had the same thing as them, and they had the same thing as us, um, there's a truth to it. I mean, I don't want to say, like, you know, it's certainly true that, unlike some, what some might think, it's true that there wasn't some other way to be right with God other than faith. But still, they didn't have anything like what we have. All right? The good things we read about are stuff that they were mostly excluded from. You know, the gold and the, and the sanctuary and all of that. So, um, you know, we want us to make all this kind of go away and not think about the fact that, you know, if the wife's time of the month comes early, all of a sudden all the plans for the family get together at, at the Feast of Booths has just got to be canceled. We want to say, oh, that's irrelevant. Well, I don't think it was irrelevant to her. I don't think it would be irrelevant to us if we had to live under that still. So that, all, that, all that, those things, the Bible tells us about them for a reason. And, you know, our temptation is to, you know, find the stuff that makes the most sense to us where we are now and abstract the rest. And so, um, you know, we have to watch for that. Um, we need abstract truths and abstract principles that we use them and we apply them in different things. But we've got to be careful we don't get them prematurely or inaccurately. And that's kind of where I'm going. You know, Ephesians is written, it is as generic, but it's not necessarily abstract. It's written to a certain stage in history. Certain things are going on. It's between 30 and 70 A.D. So we have to be careful with that. Um, I'm going to stop here and ask you if there's any questions about what I've said. Anyone have some curiosity they're wondering about? If I if I made myself clear, all right, good. I'm perfectly clear and absolutely easy to understand. That's great to know. All right, let me give you an example though. Um, and I I, I had a week in. I was going to give you the citation from Calvin. It's in his institute. Someone can probably find it for me right now um, at the ccel.org website. But anyway, um. One example I would give for this, and I, I have Calvin on Acts 21.1. That's, it's actually Proverbs. That's a misprint. Proverbs 21.1. Um, the king's heart is a stream in the water of, the, of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. Well, if you read the Institutes, uh, what John Calvin says is the word king there is generic for a, um, a human being. God wants you to know if a king's heart is, a, is in the hand of the Lord, then obviously everyone else's. So, um, you know, that's what it means. What this is is a, is a text meaning to prove that God is sovereign over the decisions of men. And God uses the word king in order to teach that to us, but it's just simply a statement that God 
is in control of all decisions of all men and women. And um, that's what he's saying. Uh, that's not what he's saying. That's not what Proverbs 21 is saying. That is a perfectly good and valid inference. It's a true inference from the passage. But God could have said, a man's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. You all see that? Then there'd be no guessing why he said the word king. He, he, if he wanted to say that a man's heart is a hand, he could have said a man. I mean, we could have used Adam or Ish or any other nuance he wanted, but he could have said a man. He didn't have to say a king. Why does he tell us that there's a king, that a king's heart? Well, there's a lot of things in that section of Proverbs. I'm not going to pre- pretend I understand Proverbs contextually very well. But there's a lot of things in that section about how you treat the king. The point isn't simply that God's abstractly in control of everyone. The point is that you, as a subject to your king, need to especially be careful of how you relate to him, because what you get from him is, in a certain extent, what you get from God. And so it ties into the idea that what, what, what Pilate did and what Herod did when they condemned Jesus, even though Jesus was innocent, even though God said he was innocent, in the same sense, it was celestial, it was the heavenlies passing sentence on Jesus. All right? It was, he was legally condemned by people speaking for God, in a sense. And so that's emphasized, that, you know, that whatever, um, that Herod, and, you know, it's in Acts 4, they sing about this, they, they apply to Acts 2, that, uh, the Psalm 2, that, um, you know, whatever was done was done according to your will. I mean, it was according to the predetermined uh, plan of God that Jesus would be condemned by these rulers. And also in Romans 13, you know, whatever, you know, the, the, minister, the, the, the civil ruler is a minister of God's wrath. He does not bear the sword for nothing. Now, even evil rulers, in some sense, have to be treated as if they are, to some degree, revelations of God's will for us. All right. If the king is tormenting us, it's worth asking, why is God doing this to us? In other words, even though it's true abstractly that everything comes from God's hands by providence, God hasn't told us to try to be worried about everything. He's especially told us to single, he's singled out civil rulers as a way in which God deals with us. So that's my point. Now, what would be horrible here if, if Jim Jordan disagreed with me or something? But, um, you know, but, but, if that stands, that's an example where we go for the abstract because, of course, we need to fight off the um, Arminians or the, you know, the Roman Catholic semi-Pelagians or whatever. We need to fight them off. So we just we find a text, we use the text. Our use of the text is not incorrect, but it's it's not necessarily what Solomon was trying to get across to us. It wasn't the concern per se that we find embedded in the message in context. If, if God said King, let's ask why He said King. That's that's my example. So, um, that's um, those are kind of things we need to worry about. We need to before we get to the abstract, we need to ask, you know, what is um, God telling us? What is He emphasizing in this book? Um, in Ephesians, for example. By the way, I'm going to. There's some more you're going to have to add to your notes here. I've got, but just a minute. Um, if we, you know, if I, and we've talked about this a lot on BH Land, um, at these conferences and wherever else it exists in spirit, um, you know, when we when we hear a generic gospel message, the emphasis is on what aspect of Christ's work. What, what what's the what's the main thing we say? Christ did what for you? He died for you, right? And yet, you know, in Ephesians, while it talks about His blood. It doesn't at all, I mean, you know, Christ's death is mentioned. The repeated emphasis is on his ascension. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 20 through um, 22. Um, I'll start in verse 19, or I'll start a little bit earlier. Um, Paul says he's praying for them. For certain things, I'll start in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Um, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, and which, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that's the first ascension. All right. Christ has ascended. This was God's power. And he describes this in glowing details. And it's almost like the death is just a qualification for that. You know, he died, but then he was raised up to new life and he ascended. And then he goes through it all again, talking about how it affects us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, um... By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us in him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, um, I think the way we most of us read this is that he's um, simply saying Christ is in the heavens and we were raised up to him. I don't see it that way. I, I think the way he's saying this, he's going back over the implications of the, the resurrection ascension of Jesus at the time. That Jesus, we were raised together with him. All right, he's talking about Jesus raising and ours and all the implications that has for us. Um, the fact that the church has been given to Christ means that his raising is our raising and was our raising. Um, so you, got, you have the ascension happen again. All right. And then verse 11, he goes through it again. He says, um, therefore, remember that at one time you um, Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, When did he do that, by the way? He's not talking about their conversion here. He's talking about what happened in history, right? Um, the, uh, sorry, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So there you do have the, the death mentioned again. And he came and preached um, peace who, to those who were near and those who were, I'm sorry, to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And he goes on, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit, for God by the Spirit. Now, you have this thing, you've got the cross destroying this, the law, whatever that means. We'll, we'll deal with that a little bit more um, later. But we have this whole thing raised up and um, being presented in one new body together. And then you have this whole imagery about being built up as a house, and as a tabernacle, all right, as a temple. Now, doesn't that look exactly like what he just went through in chapter 1, the very end? raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And now, chapter 2, verse 11 following, he's elaborating on that. You see, he's, he's going over the same material and, and putting out different aspects of how that works. Christ is raised up. He's given the whole church. Well, that means if he's given the whole church, he's not given two separate people. All right? One body. He's made us all one body by the Spirit that raised up Jesus. So we're no longer, there's no longer any strangers and aliens. There's only fellow citizens and saints, members of the household of God. See? He's going over the same thing again with different words to spell out some different implications. But it's the same idea. Christ has died put to death the enmity, put to death the, the sin, the condemnation, raised up, and we're all raised up with him. And that has implications for our freedom from sin, it has implications for our freedom from alienation, obstruction, and the things that keep us separate, including, um, including Jew-Gentile distinctions, which is why, something I kind of lost in the notes, which is why, while 
Ephesians has got this great Lutheran proof text in it. Ephesians is at the same time a great new perspective tract, or whatever you want to call it. I, see, it's not really that new a perspective, because I made the mistake of listening to Jim Jordan's lectures on Ephesians on my way here, and um, he, he had 11 hours to do stuff with it. I'm not going to even be trying to approximate that. But um, he's talking all over the place about Jew and Gentile relationships and being, that being essential to the gospel, because that's what Ephesians said. It's really not new. I don't know why we had to have it, why it's even causing controversy today. Because it, I guess because it came, it got this, you know, someone said it who was, you know, not a Christian. And, well, I don't know. Anyway, I'm just saying, it, it's not really that new, but it, it's here in the text. Um, the text really is about Jew and Gentile relationships. And is that really relevant to us, do we think? We probably don't think so. We probably think that what he said in chapter 2, you know, verses, you know, verses 1 through 10 is pretty much sufficient for all we need to know. And we can kind of gloss over some of this other stuff. Now, a matter of fact, as people, for those of us with Southern Presbyterian heritage, that's not true anyway. And, um, you know, we, we can talk about that sometime. But I'm just, you know, we tend to gloss over these things. But anyway, the ascension is mentioned and it's repeated and you're given different elements to it. Uh, turn over to chapter 4 where he briefly does it again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into lower parts of the earth? He, um, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there. It's just another one of those one long sentences. But my point is, you, you compare that to what we've just read, and it's again, it's the ascension, and it's the church being given to the ascended Christ, being part of his body, with a different elaboration. This time it's about the fact that, therefore, he has provided, even though Christ is all things, he doesn't give all things at once to everyone. Different people have their different gifts and places. And he especially talks there about the gift of leadership in the church um, through evangelists, apostles, and pastors, and, and teachers, and whatnot. So, um, again, the ascension just keeps happening. The ascension happens, and there's a different kind of view of the ascension, and what it means for us um, is, um, is, is, is that's given to us, it's elaborated on. And so, I, I'm saying, you know, if you want an abstract statement, the, 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 the death of Christ is certainly there. Forgiveness of sins is certainly there, but the ascension of Christ with all those things and more is kind of the center of this, you know, of Paul's gospel tract. Now, um, so I have this statement, um, ascension means Christ is enthroned king in the heavens, and that's the essence of the gospel. Now, again, this, this is stuff I used to pick up in reform circles a lot uh, until it, you know, got forced underground, or whatever is happening now. But if you turn with me to Romans chapter 10, look at verse 9. I'm, I'm going to talk, after, the, after we do Romans and Acts, I'm going to talk a little about the sacrificial system in Daniel 7 to give you an idea of why we, we, should, we actually ought to expect Ephesians is Paul's gospel track to be written the way it is. And that will, I think, prepare us to actually read um, Ephesians a little bit uh, at later, later lectures. Um, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. I, I'm obviously, as I always have to do with these passages, I'm cutting into the middle of things. Um, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now, I mean, I recently, as two years ago, um, just heard a prominent uh, Presbyterian minister just simply say as absolutely um, obvious, unnecessary to argue, simply say that the, the Lordship of Christ is not good news. All right? I mean, if it's true, it's got to be it's part of the gospel, but it's not the good news. You know, like, the good news is that Christ died for you, that he's Savior. Well, um, you know, here's the word of God, folks, and what does it say? It says, you know, if you believe in your heart that Jesus died as your substitute, that's not what he says. Now, I'm not saying it's excluded from that or anything. I'm just pointing out that Paul gives us, by his own divine authority, the emphasis on what is the basic, you know, saving confession and belief. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because you're trusting the one who is the Lord of the world, the proper Lord. If you trust him, he's going to save you from everything, including your own ignorance about other things. Um, if you trust him, he is going to change you. And that's, that's his good news. The same Lord is Lord of all. I mean, of course, we, being good Democrats, think of kings and lords as people who just give orders and bark at you and, you know, cast you into dungeons and torture you and hit you with swords. But, you know, for the, for the ancient world and for really, you know, all of this world history, lords have ideally been just as, as versatile as parents. All right? I mean, yeah, there's people that have abusive situations that don't like the doctrine of the fatherhood of God because it has these unpleasant associations. Um, that's basically our problem with lordship of Christ. We, we've got all these weird ideas about what lordship means. Lordship means savior, by the way. Lordship means he's going to take care of you. Um, so, you know, this is, um, this is how the Bible speaks. And, of course, if Christ is Lord, that's his ascension, his enthronement in the heavens. So you can see why it would make sense that Ephesians would also emphasize this point. Uh, because it's in Romans 2. Uh, Romans as well. Um, and then also, and I, I, well, let's just do this. And this is, you know, again, I, I, to some extent, I feel like I'm, um, you know, I, I never know how much people already know when I have a, a diverse group here. So please bear with me. But just... Uh, you know, one of my early influences, a, a guy I ran into um, in Florida, as a matter of fact, a Bible teacher, he had come out of a kind of fundamentalist background, and he told me that one of his big theological revolutions was sitting in a in an Acts and Paul or you know Epistles class, but included Acts, and having a classmate just turn to him and say, "Man, we had to read Acts two last night for class, and I can't believe how much Peter blew it." <laughs> And the guy was absolutely serious. And this, you know, this, this, this person told me, he's since become a Presbyterian pastor, he said, that, was, that changed everything for him. I started thinking, you know, I know why he's saying that, and I understand why that makes sense, except, you know, this is the Apostle Peter and this is the Bible, so obviously something's wrong. And that, that, that to me, makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, if you're preaching the first sermon ever of the New Age, would you preach this way? Would you preach about... Um, Oh, let's break into it here. I don't want to read the whole thing. What do I have? 22. Let's, so, uh, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Do you see any emphasis there on why Jesus died, an explanation of that? Or a... um. By the way, I'm not saying we can't teach that. I'm not saying those things aren't important or true. I'm just saying the first thing you say in the gospel is that there's a new man on the throne. Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's, that's the thing that comes out. And all those proof texts are about resurrection. Uh, verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, 
And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from him from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Right, that's the issue. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Um, the major point of the death of Christ there is to make them all feel really guilty. Because uh, they did it. You know, they, they, This person you killed is now in charge, so what are you going to do about it? And um, it's kind of interesting because law and gospel kind of get switched around in there. Because the gospel of the death of Christ is actually kind of condemning and convicting. But um, that, that happens there, and then, you know, a little later, chapter 3, verse 11 and following, can they, can they get to something else? Uh, let's actually start at verse 12. Um, this is after the healing of the lame man and bringing him rejoicing into the temple. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. All right? Glorified his servant Jesus. First thing you say about Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses by his name, by faith in his name. He has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health and the presence of you all. Um, you know, this this continues. This is what they emphasize. There is a new man. And, and, you know, this is what I think we don't understand. When we say something like, Jesus is Lord, what we're really saying is, you know, it's sort of like saying, my dad owns this company. All right? <laughs> that, that's really, I'm not, I'm, that's, it's kind of like that. It's, it's, you know, if you belong to Christ and he belongs to you, then saying Jesus is Lord, you know, you're saying... You know, my brother is mayor here. You sure you want to write that ticket? I mean, you're you're doing something (laughs) like that. Perhaps not so gratuitously abusive, but um, you know, that that's sort of what it means. Um, and and you know, it it just goes on. If you look at um chapter four, verse eight, and following, we have more of the same. Uh, They're brought before the council, and um, he just says um. He does mention these, I mean, the only, they keep mentioning the death of Christ as a way of like pinning blame on these guys to help them to repent. It doesn't seem to be, they don't say much else about it, but they also all keep saying, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, which is exactly what Paul writes, isn't it? You know, that, you know, Christ is the cornerstone, he's raised up, so there's a new heavenly dwelling now that's being built out of all of us in Christ. Um, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Peter, but Paul writes the same thing. Given the name above every name, both in this age and in the age to come. So in all of this, um, it is the resurrection and ascension um, that is the cornerstone of our salvation. The first thing to be preached. Yeah, so there's other passages there, uh, 1034 and following, 1332. You just see this over and over again. Um, 17, uh, you know, when, he, when they preach in Athens, even there, the whole point. Now, Paul may have gotten cut short, so maybe I can't lean on this, but it's certainly consistent with all the other passages. Um, he ends this, you know, not talking about anyone dying but talking about how there is going to be a judgment day and a resurrection, and God has established a judge, Jesus, by raising him from the dead. All right, he doesn't get to explicitly mention the ascension per se, but it all looks like he's going in the same direction. There is a new Lord of the universe who has been raised up. Okay, and I don't know how much he would have had explained being raised. I mean, these guys are having a hard time understanding him because they thought that he mentioned the resurrection so much. They actually thought... Anastasia was a goddess or something. You know, it says that that he they thought he was pre- preaching strange deities, plural, because it and it, it you know it doesn't say because Jesus was preaching the Father and the Son. It says because Jesus was excuse me because Paul was proclaiming Jesus in the resurrection. 
So they didn't know what to do with the word resurrection. They didn't even know how to fit it into their worldview. So that that got um, when Paul introduced the resurrection of Jesus explicitly to them, that that kind of ended his sermon. But again, it's all about this resurrection and ascension, and that's something that occurred to me. Um, you know, I asked earlier what we what do we usually say? Jesus did what for you? Um, let me ask you this. Given that, you know, among evangelicals, if we ask what was the whole point of the sacrificial animal, what did the animal do for you, what, what do we usually say? It suffered in your place, right? It, you know, well, you know, I should like, see if I can do cave drawings and make this thing. Um, does the green one work? Have I just chosen the worst one? Okay, good. All right. Um, you know, I, when you look at Leviticus chapter 1, and there are some discontinuities that only Jim Jordan understands. Um, but we have here what's called in, a, in my English Bible the burnt offering. And uh, if you look at that, um, chapter 1, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And this offering is a burnt offering from the herd. He shall offer a male without blemish. Now that corresponds to Jesus, right? Male without blemish, sinless, right? Um, He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That he, it, that, he may, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Now, maybe there's something in the Gospels that corresponds to that. I think generically the fact that Jesus was the son of David and was the, the rightful heir to the throne of David is, in a sense, the laying on of hands. That had already occurred intergenerationally. And so he was Israel's rightful representative. So you have um, laying on of hands. Let's see. Let's, let's actually let's do it this way. You got this altar, which actually has slanted. Does it have slanted walls a little bit? Stairs up? I can't remember. No. All right. You have this. That's supposed to be kind of cubicle, whatever. Anyway, and you have the animal. All right, out here, and he's um, and hands are laid on him, right? the hands, like that. And then, what does the worshiper do? Um, He'll lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and shall be accepted to him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Now, that's that's the worshiper. So you go that. And um, then, the animal's killed. And that's obviously the wrath of God. That is substitutionary, right? Jesus Christ, the blood of, his, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. We have that blood, and then a Levite, a priest, um, a priest, I'd rather, takes this blood and sprinkles it on here, and I guess there's a doorway over here, I didn't draw, and it sprinkles it on the doorway, it says. Um, it says, uh, throw the blood against the sides of the altar, I'm sorry, that is in the entrance, no, I take it back, just the, just the side of the altar. Um, I misread that. That is in the tent of meeting, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, then he shall... Then he, the worshiper, shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron and the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire of the altar, but its entrails and its legs be washed with water, and the priest shall burn all all of it on the altar as a burnt offering. Um, Now, the cutting up, I'm not going to get into what all that represents with Jesus, but the point is, he got this fire here. Okay, now red is not blood; it's fire. Okay, we can all say that. And it goes up, and it gives this mysterious blue smoke. Okay. <laughs> now, if I, as I was taught and kind of believed until I guess I listened to what is 1992 Bill Grimes' conference, I would have said all of this was hell. This is the wrath of God, right? The animal gets killed and he goes to hell, and as a result of it perpetual suffering or whatever, it is, um, it is um, a substitute. But, you know, the very last thing it says, is this, this, is, this um, 
This is a burnt offering of, look at verse 9, as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to God. All right, well, that seems a little bit strange. I mean, how is that pleasant? Well, maybe it's justice or something. But there's other passages that make it clear that, you know, with other offerings that leave a little bit over, that this stuff is holy. All right, there's other times, like a scapegoat or something, where you get them, if if it's sinful or represents unholiness, you get them outside the camp and away. Uh, But no, no. this is this this is a pleasing aroma. This stuff is holy. This is not the wrath of God. This is transfiguration and going up into heaven because this is not, as probably most of you know, um, it's not a burnt offering. It's not what it's called. Uh, some of you seminary students might have those Hebrew little Hebrew vocab cards. Remember, we have the the root for what all you know, go up. All right. So you have like go up, and you've got what you got all the roots there. So you, you look at the Hebrew word, you turn it over, and you've got go up, and then you've got, like, um, stairway or ladder or something, kind of something else. Then you've got whole burnt sacrifice there on your vocab card for, because it's the same root, because it's not a whole burnt sacrifice. It's all called an ascension offering. It's The whole point is this goes up. Now, my point to you is just this. Jesus did not just die on the cross and shed his blood on the ground. He rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven in a cloud. That is all properly Jesus' work of fulfilling this. All right? The animal goes up as and joins with God as your advocate. Jesus goes up in a cloud, the true high priest. He um, sits at the right hand of God the Father as your advocate, Lord. That's all part of his work of reconciling you to God, of making atonement for you. That's what it says, right? Well, make atonement. That's making you at one with God. He goes up as your representative. And, of course, if we all have the same representative that makes us one with God, that means we're one with one another. So, um, anyway, like I said, this is on kind of BH 101, I realize, but I just, like I said, I don't know where everyone's at um, in this audience or listening to this tape, for that matter. So, you know, it should not surprise us that Ephesians finds so much gratification and so much to say about the ascended Christ as the key and capstone to our salvation. Um, and one last thing, let's, let's tie this all into justification, even though Paul doesn't bother to mention it in Ephesians. Uh, look at Daniel 7. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I'll summarize a lot of this just to get us to the end of our lecture uh, a little bit faster. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees a, um, a vision of four beasts, which are four empires, and um, these beasts rise out of the sea. And then, after the final great beast appears, we have the beasts um, replaced by a man. This is all kind of Genesis 1 imagery. You know, there's uh, these beasts come out of the sea, the spirit or the wind is over the sea. And then you have these beasts appear, and then you have a man, a son of Adam, given dominion over these beasts. So we have, um, what's important to remember is that these beasts represent empires. They don't necessarily represent individuals per se, though actually the first one does remind us a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar himself was turned into a beast and then back into a man, and there's some similarities there. But that's supposed to be Babylon and, and, and so on. And so then... Um, the Ancient of Days comes in. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was of fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And court sat in judgment. So it's a courtroom situation. That's, that's where I'm going with this. And the books were open. And I looked then, because the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking, and I looked, and the beast was killed, his body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire, and the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Um, I saw in the night visions, and behold, in the clouds of heaven, there came up one like a son of man. He came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and of all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. I'll stop there and say, I actually, you know, I think um, typologically, I just think this is just a direct prophecy. I'm not sure about that anymore. Typologically, Christ fulfills all this in himself, um, in his person, because he goes up 
to heaven. We see that in, in Revelation. He does things like this. Um, I no longer, I think it's, Jim's kind of tainted my simplistic and abstract view of this. You know, that, that this, is, this is actually, um, this actually has application probably before uh, Jesus' Jesus' death and resurrection ascension, but at least it points to it, and um, Jesus fulfills it out. And there is, you see here, there's an ascension. All right, some man comes up to the ancient days and is given as a kingdom, is given rule, and that's exactly what Jesus does. All right, and that's Matthew 28. You know, the Great Commission is premised on this. You know, all authorities heaven on earth has been given to me. You don't believe me? Well, here, watch me. And he goes up into heaven, and he there sits down at the right hand of the Father. And uh, anyway. One of the things that's going on here, though, in Daniel is that, you know, Daniel doesn't necessarily think that this person he's seeing is an individual. Uh, there's no reason for him to think that. You know, the animals weren't singular individuals. There's no reason necessarily, I don't think, that he would assume that the, the Son of Man, perhaps, um, is necessarily an individual, but maybe. Um, but in any case, what, when he's asked to, this to be explained to him... Um, Look at verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was beast, which was exceedingly different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth and iron and claws and of bronze, which was, in which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and about the other horn that came up from before, which, um, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and the mouth that spoke great things and seemed greater than his companions. As I looked, this horn made war against the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the, old, when the saints possessed the kingdom. So what he sees as an individual, he interprets as being the saints, and the saints are given judgment, which at least means they're given a verdict. See, they're justified. All right, when God took Jesus up into the heavens, he was vindicating his people. He was saying, you know, I have forgiven them, I have taken care of them, and they are mine, and Satan has no longer any claim to the heavens. All right, Satan's, you know, in the book of Job, Satan's up there in the heavenlies. Well, in Revelation, he's fallen down because Jesus is now on the throne. That is a vindication. That is a justification, and we can't have the full or biblical doctrine of how we're vindicated without understanding that it's not just the notion of price or substitute in the sense of dying for us, it's also the fact that we now have our king back. All right, the dominion that Adam derailed himself from, Jesus has, and, and greater. And that is our vindication. That is our righteousness. That is our um, justification before God. So that's, um, I've, I've been through a lot of scriptures. Again, all of this is just simply to make Ephesians make more sense. So we'll, we'll start on Ephesians chapter 1 next time. Are there any questions, comments, or tomatoes in the audience right now? Any, any, anyone want to? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew I was going to have to explain this sooner or later. Um, about what are the lower parts of the earth? Uh, I think it's Sheol. I think it refers to just him dying. I think it refers to the grave. A lot of commentators disagree with me. But I think the idea is that he, he's died and risen again, therefore he is the Lord both living and the dead. That's in, that's in Romans 14. So I take it as the descent is his descent into the grave. And um, a lot of commentators, I think, want to make it more incarnational. As you know, the lower parts of the earth, it's just simply the fact that he came as a, as a man and then ascended back. That's, I, I think it has to do with, um, you will not abandon my soul in Hades. Um, I think the lower parts of the earth is, is a reference to the grave. That's that's my understanding right now. So I'm still, I mean, I'm a work in progress on this, so I will take correction, I hope. Um, okay, now that we've gotten the worst question I would possibly be asked out of the way, um, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, any other questions? Comments? Suggestions even? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> 
Right. Yeah, he starts with the resurrection of Mars Hill and talks about authority. He doesn't necessarily use the language of ascension in that. But he's going, my point is he doesn't seem to be, the resurrection though in Christ's authority and, and governance of the universe seems to be his primary foci. You know, he's appointed a man to judge the world. He doesn't, that, that, so yeah, you're right. He does not mention the ascension because you're, you're I mean, in the, in the same language that would have been, that the, um, his, yeah, it was foreign to them. I mean, they actually, the resurrection itself kind of freaked him out, but at least they understood what he meant. So you're right, yeah, absolutely. But it, it, but I'm saying it still comports with the other sermons as to what he's oriented towards, where he's going. But you're right, he shifts the language. Well, I'm just getting to the point you were making about where with Romans, Galatians, having an emphasis on the right hand, I think he's the one that is on the resurrection. If I don't preach the resurrection, I might as well just go home. That's right. 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 Yeah, Steve. How the final judgment is good news that comes out in Acts, and that always strikes me as counterintuitive. Did I actually say the final judgment was good news? Well, you connected it with worship. Oh, okay. But, you know, we always think everything's connected. All right. I actually remember having a good friend, and when he became a Calvinist, he did not want to confess that we would be judged by our works at the last day. Oh, okay. You know, it didn't comport because he'd been called to judgment, the opposite of good news. Well, a couple of things I would say there about the final judgment being good news. Um, I think there's psalms that talk about the fact that God will judge the world is good news. There's a hundred things of injustice that's been going on in the world, and we sh- it should be good news to us that God's going to set all things right. Um, it should also be good news that God um, doesn't just put up with us because he decided to forgive us, but he actually appreciates us and loves us and actually enjoys our works. I mean, this is kind of a sonship thing, but you know, I, I remember... Um, Hearing secondhand from Jack Miller, you know, do we all believe God loves us, but do we believe he likes us as well? Well, guess what? He likes us. He actually enjoys being around us. I mean, I'm sure he has to hold his nose occasionally and all that, but still, he actually likes us. And he's going to prove it to us. And he's, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be fascinated with us. You know, the kind of things that, you know, we, we like other people. We hang around people that we like. Well, God hangs around them too, and if they're in Christ, for that reason. And I, I think that um, you take that away, and what do you have? You have a you know a God who you know has some sort of um, you know feels like he should you know love people and and forgive some of them, but he doesn't what he doesn't appreciate what he's what he's got as a result of that. I, I don't think so. I think God really genuinely loves his people. He remakes them. He calls them. Yes, they fall short. Yes, they need the forgiveness every day. Um, yes, they need to be considered only in Christ, and only in Christ can their works be acceptable to God. That's all true. Um, but you take that away from people, you're basically saying, that, you know, I mean, it's, it's it's one thing to have a trust fund set up from by a stranger that takes care of you. It's another thing to have someone actually tell you that he appreciates you, that he's been watching you, and he enjoys what you've been doing. Well done, Steve. You know, that to hear that from God himself, from Jesus, who who would want to take that away from believers? So I, I don't I don't understand why there's no understanding of how this could be good news. There's probably a lot more that could be said about that, but I'll let it go. Um, any other questions? Okay. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the full Mark Horn collection now on Canon Plus.